Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, inventor of my pillow, here to tell you about my Giza Dream bed sheets. I made sure that they would be everything you'd ever want in a sheet set. I started with the world's finest cotton called Giza. It's only grown in a region where the Sahara Desert, the Nile River, and the Mediterranean Sea all meet. The long staple cotton makes my Giza Dream sheets ultra soft and durable. They come with extra wide pillowcases to fit over any pillow and extra deep pockets to fit over any mattress. Not only that, they come with my 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And now you can get the best sheets ever for the best price ever. When you buy one of my Giza Dream bed sheet sets, you'll get another one absolutely free. I personally guarantee that they'll be the most comfortable sheets you'll ever own. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener Specials for the buy one, get one free offer on Giza Sheets. All you got to do, Renegade Nation, is enter the promo code RENEGADE or call 1-800-889-6817 for these great specials. That's 1-800-889-6817. Use the promo code RENEGADE. Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night, frighteningly imagined creatures, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries, but I promise all sorts of weirdness. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, well, we're shifting gears just a little bit, and we're picking up on a story that I've been fascinated with over the years, so I really hope you guys like it. I don't know, I felt like we needed a little true crime, so I'm shifting gears a little bit. We'll get back to listener suggestions. we got plenty of those. Anyways, with all that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say, photo, that will be a single shot, and every time I say, missing, that's going to be a double shot. Alright, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So, grab your sleuthing kit, some comfortable shoes, your absolute best flash dance outfit, because what a feeling, and a huge old can of Aquanet. If you're not from the 80s, you will not get those references. Anyways, as we dive into today's topic, the mysterious disappearance of Tara Calico and that questionable Polaroid. That's right, my darlings. I have followed this story for many a year and I felt like finally I think I'm ready to try and make my way on it. Anyways, many people who knew Tara Lee Calico have described the 19-year-old as an effervescent young woman who was strongly independent 
and very organized. Tara was born on February 28, 1969. Her mother, Patty, eventually divorced Tara's birth father and ended up remarrying a man by the name of John Dole. John would soon become an outstanding father to Tara, and with the formation of this new family, John brought two children of his own, a daughter by the name of Michelle Dole and a son by the name of Chris Dole. Tara grew up a well-adjusted young woman, and she was in her sophomore year at the University of New Mexico, where she was diligently studying psychology. Tara had aspirations of becoming a psychologist after she earned. Tara also took organization and preparedness very seriously. Tara was also described as intelligent, funny, and outgoing. She would step up to stop others from being picked on or made fun of. She was a huge bookworm, and she was really into physical fitness. She made lists all the time and always kept her activities scheduled. Tara was working at a local bank while she attended college at the University of New Mexico. And she was a huge sports lover. In fact, she was an avid runner and bicyclist. In fact, Tara rode her bike on the same arduous 36-mile trek almost every single day. I'm going to stop here for just a moment and just point out that I don't even want to drive 36 miles every single day, let alone ride my bike. I'm just saying. Just saying. Anyways, Tara's mother, Patty, would ride with her most days on these bike rides, as this was a great bonding experience for this mother-daughter duo. But on some of their more recent bike rides, the pair had become suspicious that a vehicle had begun following them. And this justifiably made Pat a little bit nervous. So she came to the decision to stop participating in the bike rides. Patty also asked her daughter to lay off the bike rides, at least for a while. But Tara was a dedicated cyclist, and she decided to continue her daily ride no matter what. Patty implored Tara to at least carry some mace with her for protection on her bike rides. But Tara thought her mother was, well, being a bit silly and overly concerned, and she just declined the suggestion from her, from her mother. Now, I'm going to point out that if you haven't guessed it, this is in the late 80s, so this is before cell phones and all these other kinds of lovely things. So, yeah, you know what? Kids were a little bit more, you know what? It can't happen to me in this day and age. Anyways. Tara awoke on the morning of September 20th, 1988, and she began her day, as she always did, by making a list for her day. The first thing on her list was her daily bike ride, 36 miles, which should take her right around two hours to complete. Tara planned to be home from this ride roughly about noon, so she would then leave her home on Brug Street in Bellin, New Mexico, to meet a boyfriend for a game of tennis at 12.30. Okay, I'm going to pause for a minute here just to point out that, again, she rode her bike 36 miles and then wanted to play tennis. Okay, I'm already tired just thinking about it. Anyways, on this day, Tara asked her mother if she could borrow her mother's bike. Tara's bike was being worked on. It had a flat tire and there was some slight body damage which was being fixed. Patty, of course, told her daughter, yes, she could use the bike for her ride. 
Patty Dole's bike was a bright neon pink huffy mountain bike with bright yellow cables and yellow sidewalls on the tires. Yes, I know, it screams 1980s. But, you know, it is the 80s, so whatever. Tara dressed in her typical bike riding outfit, which on this day consisted of a white t-shirt with First National Bank of Bellin written on it. This is the bank where Tara was working. She also had on a pair of white shorts with green stripes on the sides, white ankle socks, and a pair of turquoise Avia tennis shoes. Yeah, it was the 80s. And of course, this was the 80s, so Tara was also wearing some accessories. Because, you know what? We loved our accessories in the 80s. Get over it. She had on a gold butterfly ring that had a diamond insert, a gold and amethyst ring, and some half-inch gold hoop earrings. To tie the entire outfit together, and to make the, this picture in your mind as 80s as it could possibly be, Tara also had on her bright yellow Walkman, which held a tape from the band Boston. This is where I started digging into the story. Tara was smart, athletic, and I'm sorry, but she had some really great taste in music. That's right. Nicole loves old rock. Well, really, I like everything, but Boston is iconic. They're fabulous. Tara had already laid out her tennis outfit so that she could change into it when she returned from her bike ride. She'd also laid out and organized her school supplies, including her books and homework, because the third thing on Tara's list for that day was her class scheduled to begin at 4 p.m. As Tara left the house, she jokingly told her mother that if she was not back by her ride from by noon, that she should come looking for her in case she got another flat tire. Now, remember, this is the 80s. There were no cell phones. There were no pagers. Seriously, we actually had to go find phones to try and call people and most people only had landlines anyways if they had that anyways an eyewitness says that they saw tara riding her bike along highway 47 in valencia county at approximately 11:45 a.m this was part of tara's daily route for her 36 mile trip and she was easily recognizable her plan was to be done with her ride around noon so Tara being on Highway 47 at 11.45 lines up perfectly in her timeline based on her normal biking route. As the clock struck noon at the Dole home, Patty noticed that her daughter had still not returned from her bike ride. And Pat decided to go looking along Tara's normal route in the car because maybe Tara had some trouble or maybe she was just being overly protective of her baby girl. But either way, she went to look. Pat drove down Tara's normal route, but she did not see her daughter. So she drove the route in the other direction and still saw nothing. There were just no signs of Tara anywhere. Pat thought about it and decided she did not need to be panicked because maybe she had just simply missed Tara somehow. And just now Tara was back at home in a room changing into that tennis outfit ready to go and meet her boyfriend for their tennis match. So Pat drove back to her house. She walked in the door, casually calling out for Tara, but there was no response. So she walked down the hall to Tara's room. Nothing had been disturbed. And now is when it began to sink in. And Pat got that sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach that every mother gets at some point. Pat and her husband, John, 
decided that they should immediately begin checking with local hospitals. What if Tara had been injured on her bike ride and someone had taken her to the hospital? They began frantically calling around to all of the local hospitals, but there was no good news at the end of any of those calls. No one had seen Tara. After finding no new information from their calls around town, Pat and John decided to call the Valencia County Sheriff's Office to file a missing persons report for their daughter, Tara Calico. This would normally be the point in the story where I tell you that the police told the family that they had to wait 48 or 72 hours to file a missing persons report, or that Tara was 19 years old, so she had the right to go missing. But no, the Valencia County Sheriff's Office began a full search for Tara Calico within five hours of Tara having gone missing. And on top of this, they also entered the case into the National Crime Information Center, or NCIC, with a special note that foul play was suspected. This would garner the notice more attention. The detectives in this case could tell that Tara had plans and things going on in her life that she would not walk away from. She also had no conflicts with other human beings. The police just never had any doubt that Tara was truly a missing person. They truly believe something happened to her. Tara's sister, Michelle, stated that she vividly remembers this day. Michelle was 15 years old at the time and a sophomore in high school. Michelle said, and I quote, I remember one of my sister's best friends and her boyfriend came to get me from school. They picked me up, and when we got home, there was just a bunch of cops, end quote. Pat and John told Michelle that Tara had gone out on her normal everyday bike ride, but she had not come home. They described how Pat had gone out on her own looking for Tara, but had not been able to locate her. This description of events is what triggered the nerves in the 15-year-old girl. This was when Michelle realized this was serious. Volunteer groups had already begun actively searching for Tara. Michelle recalled, and I quote, I didn't understand what was going on. I just assumed that maybe she had gone a different way and that we were going to find her. I didn't think she was missing until later on that evening when I started to realize how serious this really was. But I was just kept, just kept thinking that she was going to come back, end quote. The local and state police, along with many civilian volunteers and other investigative agencies from the surrounding areas, were already heavily involved in the search efforts. After talking to Michelle, Pat and John left to join in on the search. People were searching on foot. Some were on horseback. They even had helicopters already. But even with this Herculean effort being put forth, they were still coming up with absolutely nothing in their arduous search for this missing woman. But you can only find nothing until you find something. And that is what happened next. A singular piece of evidence was discovered. Tara's audio tape of Boston was located. It was just cast aside in the loose dirt piled on the side of the road. And this tape was found just three short miles from Tara's home. Pat identified the tape as being Tara's and then a second something was found approximately 19 miles away, near the John F. Kennedy campgrounds. Searchers located a broken piece of Tara's yellow Walkman. The piece which was found was that little clear window in the front side of the Walkman, where you can see the tape just spinning away inside of those little window. The discovery of this clear piece of plastic 
a miracle in itself, also led to additional evidence being discovered. In the loose dirt, there were clear bicycle tracks, and something about these tracks looked suspicious. Typical, typically, bike tracks are pretty straight, but these tracks looked like someone had forced this bike off the road. This was further substantiated by a set of vehicle tracks, which were also present, with the same type of movement which confirmed the investigator's hypothesis. Pat, at this time, believed that Tara may have possibly left this evidence on purpose, maybe as a trail, dropping breadcrumbs for them like a young Hansel and Gretel out in the woods. Police have now begun interviewing locals who may have been in the area while Tara was out riding her neon pink Huffy mountain bike with the bright yellow cables and plenty of witnesses came forward with information. Based on the information from seven eyewitnesses on the day Tara disappeared, police were able to construct a pretty clear timeline of Tara's whereabouts up until 11.45 a.m. Five of the seven witnesses also reported seeing something strange at the time they saw Tara, and each of the witnesses saw Tara along different portions of her bike route. However, each of these five independent witnesses said that when they saw Tara riding her bike, they also saw an older model pickup truck trailing just behind her. And you can picture this too, if you try. Tara Calico is riding her neon pink bike, her brown hair is pulled back in a ponytail. She's wearing her white t-shirt with First National Bank of Bellin written on it. She also had on those white shorts with green stripes on the sides, her white ankle socks, and a pair of turquoise Avia tennis shoes. She's focused on more than a feeling blasting in her ears. And she can't even hear the loud rumbling muffler of that older model pickup riding slowly just behind her. Witnesses all said that the truck was a light color, possibly tan, but they couldn't be sure because this truck had a camper shell on the back and several witnesses thought it was possibly a Ford, but this was the best description they could give. None of them saw who was in or driving the truck. The day after Tara disappeared, the worst thing that can happen during a missing persons case happened. It began to rain and storm. With hope beyond measure, the searchers continued. They hoped they could find something, anything else, before the rain washed it all away. And the searches continued, and they continued, and they continued. And several weeks went by. Searches were performed every single day. But after weeks of this continuous search, there were still no signs of Tara. They had not even found her mom's bicycle that she had been riding. Tara and the bike had just vanished. Sadly, time does what it always does, and it kept marching on. Nine agonizing months crawled by while the searching continued, and Pat and John felt more and more desperate to find their missing daughter. But then, on July 15, 1989, their first break in the case, in the form of a phone call received by Tara's stepfather, John Dole, this unexpected call was from a family friend who told John that they had something strange to share with him. The person on the other end of the line told John that their family had been watching a new episode of A Current Affair. If you've never actually seen A Current Affair, it was kind of everything on entertainment tonight with just a little bit of grocery store tabloid thrown in. And the show was hosted by Maury Povich. Yeah, that Maury Povich. So, gives you an idea. 
Anyways, it was a news magazine show. During that evening's episode, the show covered a story about a disturbing Polaroid photo which someone had randomly found, and John Dole's friend thought that the strange photo just might be of interest to John and his search for his missing daughter. The photo in question had been found in Port St. Joe, Florida, in the parking lot of a convenience store. Port St. Joe is located directly next to St. Joseph Bay in the Florida Panhandle. It is directly between Panama City Beach and Tallahassee, and it is also directly adjoining the vast Apalachicola National Forest. By the way, I practiced that four times to make sure I could get that right this time. Yes, I did. The photo was found by a woman. She parked her car in the parking spaces just outside of the store, and as she exited her vehicle and began stepping through the empty space next to her, she glanced over and saw a man sitting in a white van just a space or so over from her own vehicle. The man had a mustache and was probably 34, maybe 35. She thought nothing of this and proceeded into the store going about her business. But when she exited the store, she noticed that the white van was now gone, but as she glanced over at the vacant space stained with years of oil drips, she noticed something strange lying on the ground, and it caught more of her attention, and she turned and walked over to the empty space. There, lying on the ground, completely out of place, was a Polaroid photo, or at least the back of one. So she bent down and plucked the photo from the ground, and as she stood in the empty parking space, she was shocked at what she was holding in her hand. In this photo, there were two people, a young woman and an adolescent boy. Both of these downtrodden-looking youths appeared to be in the back of this white panel van, now, that may not sound very strange at all, but in this photo, these two people appeared to be tied up with their hands bound behind their backs, and each one also had a piece of duct tape covering their mouth. Both of these people are staring directly at the camera. Their eyes look worn and tired, but the girl's eyes were shooting daggers at whoever was taking the photo. The reason John Dole's friend had contacted him was because he believed that the girl in the photo looked exactly like Tara. Now, I'm going to start off by saying that there are several things in and about this photo which have caused some concerns over the years. For one, people question whether the photo was a fake. There were several questions raised about the positioning of the two people's arms in the photo. It is clearly meant to show that both of these individuals' hands were bound behind their backs, but you cannot see any of their supposed bindings in the photo. It also called into question whether their arms are actually close enough together behind their backs to actually be tied up. The woman who had discovered the photo called the police to report what she had just found, and the police began attempting to figure out who these two kidnapped youngsters were. The woman said that the man who had been driving the van looked to be in his mid-thirties with a dark mustache, but that was all that she could give investigators as a description. She described the van as a white Toyota cargo van with no windows, you know, the type of van you see and immediately get a bad feeling about stranger danger. Police began to assume that these may be two young sex trafficking victims. Police immediately set up roadblocks to question the general public. 
They were trying to find a witness or anyone who may have recognized the two people in the photo. They just came up completely empty-handed. And I know at this point, most of you listeners are going, wait a minute, why didn't they try the security video? This was the 80s. Not every store had security video at this time. Anyways, Port St. Joe was a very small community back in the 80s. The population of the town was roughly 10,000 people at that time. But absolutely no one had any information to provide the police. It was after all local options were exhausted that police decided to release the photo to the press in hopes that anyone could provide them with information about the subjects in the photo. And this is where a current affair comes into play. They picked up the story and they began circulating the photo in an attempt to identify these two people. You gotta give them credit. You know what, they might have been a tabloid magazine show, but at the very least, they tried. John Dole's friend had contacted him after seeing the photo on a current affair because he believed that the girl in the photo looked a lot like the, the missing stepdaughter, Tara. A different family had also seen this photo, and they believed that the young boy in the photo looked like their missing son, Michael Henley, who was nine years old at the time, and he went missing from the Zuni Mountains in New Mexico. He had disappeared on April 21st, 1988, roughly five months before Tara Calico also disappeared in New Mexico. By the way, if you guys are wondering why I'm so interested in this story, I grew up near New Mexico. Okay, so I heard a lot about this. Anyways, and I'm going to deviate just a little bit from Tara's story and give you some information about Michael Henley's case. Michael was on a camping trip with his father and a family friend in the Zuni Mountains of New Mexico. The trio had been at their campsite for less than 20 minutes when Michael disappeared. When the adults noticed that the young boy was missing, they searched around the camp but found no trace of him. They quickly became concerned that the boy had wandered off into the vast wilderness. Michael's family, along with the police and the National Guard, conducted a month-long search, but they never found any trace of Michael. After this month-long search, a fierce snowstorm swept through the area, and the treacherous terrain made it impossible to continue searching at that time. And Michael had been missing ever since that day. Now, police had the Polaroid photo analyzed, and it was determined that the photo had been taken recently. The FBI was not confident enough to conclude that the two victims in the photo were in fact Tara or Michael. However, a forensic artist compared the picture photo to photos of the missing two youngsters, and they did conclude that there was an 85% possibility that the Polaroid photo was both Tara and Michael. This led investigators to speculate that both Tara Calico and Michael Henley had been kidnapped by the same individual while they were in New Mexico. And of course, they assumed this person had to be the man with the mustache in the white van from the convenience store parking lot in Florida. In June of 1990, Michael Henley's remains were discovered. They were located just a few miles away from the campsite where he had last been, been setting up camp with his dad. The remains were identified through dental records and the cause of death was determined to have been hypothermia. Foul play was completely ruled out. As it turned out, Michael more than likely had simply wandered away from his dad in their campsite for just a moment and he got irrevo irrevocably lost. But at least his family now knows he's not a helpless victim tied up in the back of a crazy person's van. 
It could now be definitively proven that the mysterious Polaroid photo was not Michael Henley. His mother had been wishy-washy in her belief that the boy in the photo was her missing son, but sometimes when you're desperate to believe something, it's hard for us to see past our own desires. And I can understand that. John and Pat had their own feelings about this photo when they saw it. They too believed that the girl in the photo was their missing daughter, Tara. They said that the eyes and the ears looked the same. She also had a very distinct cowlick in her hair, which matched the one on the girl in the photo. Another thing in the photo that made Pat 100% sure that this was her daughter was the fact that when Tara was younger, she had been in a pretty bad car accident, which resulted in her having a very distinctive scar on her leg. And the girl in the photo had this exact same scar on her leg. Another aspect of this photo that stood out to Pat Dole was the book that was lying beside the girl. The book is My Sweet Audrina by author V.C. Andrews. V.C. Andrews happens to have been Tara's favorite author, so this was just another layer to add to this mystery. After the photo had been analyzed, a phone number was discovered on the spine of the book. Most of the numbers were not legible, and the Charlie Project says that it could be over 300 different possible phone numbers. The FBI had processed the photo and analyzed it as much as they could, but they had run out of new information. So, they sent the photo to Scotland Yard for further analysis. Scotland Yard analyzed the photo, and they concluded that the girl in the photo is 100% Tara Lee Calico. This seemed to be pretty big news. Even if they couldn't find Tara, at least they knew she was possibly still alive. But after this analysis, another gr group took a crack at the photo, and the Los Alamos National Laboratory analyzed the photo and concluded that the girl in the photo was actually not Tara Calico. I mean, it's just mind-bending. I cannot imagine how this family had to feel being ping-ponged back and forth with these competing results, when all they want to know is that their daughter's still alive. The investigators also contacted the Polaroid company directly, and Polaroid told the investigation that the type of film used in the photo was not made until May of 1989. That means that if the girl in the photo was Tara, this photo could not have been taken until she had been missing for eight months. And the girl in the photo appeared, for all intent and purpose, to be well cared for and healthy. And what I mean by this is she looks like she was at least being fed. Tara's mother still believed that this was definitely her daughter. The case didn't really progress after that photo was found, but John and Pat Dole were not the type of people to stand idly by and wait for others to solve their problems. So they began training to become auxiliary sheriff's deputies for the Valencia County Sheriff's Department. And they passed their training and were sworn in in 1991. Now, first off, I'm just going to stop for a second and, and say, what a pair of fucking parents, right? Like, you're not doing enough to find my daughter. Fuck you. I'm going to become a deputy and do it myself. That is amazing. Like, seriously, much props to, to them both. Anyways, back to the story. The couple did this so they could be more involved in their own daughter's case. Being officially deputized allowed them to be an official part of the investigation. And John said, and I quote, We were both deputized after Tara's disappearance and were able to investigate the case. It allows us to do two things, to carry weapons and also to be able to contact any other law enforcement agency on behalf of the Sheriff's Department regarding the case. We were both commissioned as auxiliary deputies, end quote. Again, 
like so amazing that these people did this. This is how far you go to find your child. I'm just going to say it seriously. Pat always maintained her belief that Tara was alive. But if this was not true, then she, at the very least, wanted to bring her daughter's body home to rest. As part of this ongoing investigation, and now that Pat and John had become badass auxiliary sheriff's deputies, they would be sent photos of unidentified deceased young women, and the manila envelope would arrive, and Pat knew that each and every one of those photos she would have to look at would be awful and grotesque. She still held herself steadfast, and she looked at each and every one of those photos to see if one of them was her missing child. Seriously, this woman was a badass before badasses even were invented. I'm just saying it. Tara's brother, Chris, said, and I quote, The police would send photos of every possibility, including photos of dismembered bodies. And every time mom got an envelope with the newest pictures, she had to look at them. She couldn't not, but it tore her up inside every time. End quote. In 2003, Patty and John Dole moved to Florida, the Sunshine State. And when they bought a new house and moved into it, the dedica- they dedicated a bedroom specifically for Tara. As every year came and went, they bought Tara birthday presents and Christmas presents. They stored all of these beautiful gifts in the bedroom made for, for Tara. Patty Dole suffered a series of strokes that led her, left her unable to properly speak. One of Pat's close friends told People Magazine that, and I quote, she would see a girl on a bicycle and she would point to her and write down the word Tara. John would have to calmly explain to his wife that no, that wasn't Tara. And just three years after their move to Florida, Patty Dole passed away. And after her passing, Tara's sister Michelle took up the baton her mother had placed down. And Michelle began to run for Tara. The sheriff at the time was Rene Rivera, and Sheriff Rene said that he did not believe that the photo was of Tara, even though the two girls looked very similar. Rene Rivera said that he had worked this case since he was first on the force back in 1989, and he had dug up many different locations that were rumored to be locations of her body. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, in 2008, Sheriff Rene Rivera states on the record that he knows for a fact what happened to Tara Calico. He goes on to say that he also knows who perpetrated the, the crimes against her. But after saying this simple but hugely complex statement, the sheriff then says that there is not enough physical evidence to convict anyone for the crimes, and he attempts to stop speaking about the case. Well, I'm going to say if you know who did it and who perpetrated a crime and you didn't arrest them, fuck you, dude. I'm just saying it. All right. But the public does not let this man get away with his lame-ass statement, and they demand to know more. After some pushing, he claims that it was two teenage boys who were known to him at the time, and they had been driving the truck described by the eyewitnesses. He went on to say that the information that he had was that the truck accidentally ended up striking Tara, at which time she fell to the side of the road. After Tara had been struck by the vehicle, the boys took her into the truck. Sheriff Rene Rivera goes on with his claim by stating that the boys then panicked and killed Tara in a desperate attempt to hide their wrongdoings. The sheriff also believes that Tara most likely knew the boys involved. Finally, the sheriff told the public that his office was working to put together a substantial case. However, 
they were still looking for additional evidence to help them definitively solve this case and secure a conviction. The sheriff was still actively looking for either Pat's bicycle that Tara had been riding, Tara's bright yellow Walkman, or Tara's body. The sheriff goes on in his claims that there may have been two additional male youths who were involved in the case and they may know where Tara's body could be located. Sheriff Rene Rivetta then stated that he personally believed that Tara's body was still located within their county. John Dole's response to this diatribe of information was to say, and I quote, I thought it was silly when I heard it. There is such a thing as circumstantial evidence, and I know in other places and other cases, they have gotten a conviction with only circumstantial evidence, end quote. Damn right, John. Seriously? I'm just going to say that if he knows all of this, and so far that's a pretty substantial, almost like it is a an confession, and he can't get a conviction, yeah, I'm going to go with bullshit. The following year, 2009, after no further movement on the case, a couple of additional photographs appeared. This is 20 years after the original Polaroid photo had been found in that parking lot in Port St. Joe. The Port St. Joe, Florida police chief, David Barnes, received one of these new photos. They were postmarked June 10th and August 10th, 2009, and they had been mailed from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque. I've been there several times. It's a lovely town. One of these mysterious letters contained a photo simply printed on standard copy paper. This photo was of a young boy with soundy brown hair. On the printed out photo, someone had drawn a thick black stripe over the boy's mouth, possibly attempting to make it appear like the boy in the photo from 1989 with the duct tape stuck over his mouth. The second of the letters contained the original image of the same boy. On August 12, 2009, the Star newspaper in Port St. Joe received a third cryptic letter. This letter was also postmarked from Albuquerque. It had been sent two days earlier on August 10th, and this letter contained the same type of image as the first letter received by David Barnes, a photo printout on copy paper with the same black ink mark drawn over a boy's mouth. The police could not definitively prove if this was the same boy from the image sent to the police chief. None of these letters contained a return address, shocking, and there was no information indicating the child's identity. This led investigators to believe that these letters were possibly connected to the Tara Calico case, and the photos were then sent to the FBI for further analysis, but no new evidence was obtained. There have also been two other Polaroid photos which have showed up that possibly contain an image of Tara Calico. The first of these photos was found near a construction site in Montecito, California. It's a blurry photo of a girl's face with tape over her mouth, and behind her in the photo you can see some blue striped fabric which looks somewhat similar to the fabric in the original 1989 photo. This photo had been taken on film which was not available until after June of 1989. The second of the photos depicts a woman who is loosely bound in gauze and her eyes are covered with more gauze and a pair of large black framed glasses. The woman is with a male and the pair are seated on an Amtrak train car. The film used in that photo was not available until February of 1990. Tara's mother Patty saw both of these photos before her death and she said that she thought the first of the photos could have possibly been Tara. However, she felt as if the second of these photos, the one on the train, was probably just a gag, a joke. Tara's sister Michelle said, and I quote, 
They had a striking, uncalming resemblance. As for me, I will not rule them out, but keep in mind our family has had to identify many other photographs, and all but those three were ruled out. End quote. Now that's a big statement for me because, again, the mom and the dad became police officers, basically. And the mom had to look at every missing person picture and body dump that came out. And I'm sorry, but New Mexico has a lot of those because there's nothing there. And you're close enough to Texas and you think if it's coming close, she's seeing a million and one of these photos. And these three were the ones that were not rolled out. So that to me holds a lot of water. Anyways, in October 2013, Tara Calico's now cold case was officially reopened and a six-person task force was selected, which included agents from Homeland Security, the New Mexico State Police Department, the Valencia County Sheriff's Office, the Albuquerque Police Department, and the Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office. Police took a statement from a man named Henry Brown, who had worked as a public school teacher. This statement would be Henry Brown's deathbed confession. In this confession, Henry claimed that at the time Tara Calico went missing, he was in the habit of hanging out with a pretty bad crowd. The ringleader of this group of friends was a Lawrence Romero Jr., and the, and the significance of this name was not lost on investigators because Lawrence Romero Sr. had been, guess what, the sheriff of Valencia County where Tara had gone missing. Brown stated that Lawrence Romero Jr. was a pretty bad kid who did some pretty terrible things, but he used his father's position and power to remain out of trouble. Brown went on to explain that he had attended a small gathering at a dilapidated trailer on the then sheriff's property. This was a typical hangout spot for Romero Jr. and his delinquent friends. While at this gathering, Brown noticed a tarp in the corner of the room that was obviously covering something he could not identify by its shape. Brown then goes on to claim that the other boys at this gathering told him that they had encountered Tara Kalika on the road on that fateful day and that they had run her off the road, kidnapped her, and eventually killed her. The boys said that after she was killed, they had hidden her body in some bushes, but when the search for the missing girl had intensified, they got nervous that she would be discovered, so they went back and absconded with her deceased body and took it to this trailer where Brown now sat. Later, after this gathering, the boys moved Tara's body from this trailer and dumped her body in a pond. Henry Brown said that even though he had wanted to come forward with this information earlier, he had not done so because these boys had threatened to kill him if he were to ever come forward and tell the police anything. And when your dad's the police chief, you're probably going to find out that information. So I'm just going to say he has a good reason. After this confession, another member of the childhood friend game came forward and told the exact same story. This man's name was Donald Dutcher. And these two people were no longer in fear of coming forward because Lawrence Romero Jr. had committed suicide almost 20 years earlier. I would question why they waited an additional 20 years after the threat to them had been self-neutralized, but you know, that's just me. Call me crazy. I think of those things. There is a rumor of a suicide note in which Romero Jr. confessed to the murder of Tara Calico. However, this note had possibly been covered up and not entered into evidence by Romero Jr.'s father, the Sheriff Romero Sr. Sheriff Romero 
also worked diligently to make sure his son's cause of death was not listed as a suicide. The then current sheriff of Valencia County, New Mexico, Rene Rivera, would not divulge information about this cover-up, and it is believed by many that he is now also participating in the cover-up in an attempt to protect the law enforcement personnel involved. Yeah, they really do protect that thin blue line at all costs, and that is sad to say. In 2019, the FBI posted a $20,000 reward for information that would lead to the location of Tara Calico or the arrest of those responsible for her disappearance. They have also released an age-progressed photo of Tara to show what she could possibly look like today. In September of 2021, the Valencia County Sheriff's Office, along with the New Mexico State Police, issued a statement that they had found a new lead in the case and that the focus of a sealed warrant was for an unknown private residence located within Valencia County. However, no further details had been provided. Had Tara Calico not gone missing on this seemingly benign day, well, she'd be in her 50s. Tara's family maintained their hope that she would someday be found alive, but now John Dole, along with his children Michelle and Chris, know that it's very unlikely that she's out there alive somewhere. Patty Dole went to her death, asserting that the girl in the Polaroid photo was her missing daughter, Tara. Whether she truly believed this or not, it was her last vestige of hope that someday she may possibly re be reunited with her daughter. Eerily, among the many questions surrounding the case is, who are the people in the photo really? Is that Tara? And even if it is, what was happening to her and what became of her? And if not, then who's the girl in the photo? Also, if that boy is not Michael Henley, which it's not, then who is he? No one seems to know, and to this day, the case remains a profound mystery. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our very long episode today. I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think of today's story. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that is all the time I have for you this evening. I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. See you, my heathens. I love you. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.